Welcome to the Metaphysical Martini Show, where wit and wisdom come together to bridge the gap between the spirit realm and the physical world. With Ani Abadisian, the Suburban Shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio. Hello everyone, it's Ani Abadisian. Welcome to Metaphysical Martini. Three-part spirit... One part rational mind, two drops of optimism, give it all a good heart shake and pour. Dress it with the olives of grace and empathy, sip slowly and contemplate the wonder of cosmic creation. Ooh, that's good stuff. And when I drink the good stuff, I feel inspired to discuss a great many subjects with you today. So let's get going. Oh, wait, before we get into the meat of the show, or, you know, if you're a vegetarian, before we get into the robust cabbage portion of the show, I would like to address a couple of comments from listeners with regard to the previous show. I have a note here from Nonny Mouse. Hello, Nonny Mouse. Asking me to explain why, after stating that angels did not exist, I went on to tell a story about them. Well, uh, sir or madam Nonny Mouse... I didn't say that angels don't exist, per se. The implication was more along the lines of, well, of them not being supernatural beings flying around with wings of gold, just flying around randomly, bestowing grace and favour on a fragile, uh, you know, pathetic human, human race. You know, personifying cosmic hierarchy is handy. We do it all the time. It makes them accessible. It makes them user-friendly. But for reasons that I think are probably all too obvious, we have to be careful not to give them human characteristics. So I thank you for the question, Nonny, because it's a big one. You know, when we look at the word angel, it's probably from the Greek, angelos, meaning messenger, a divine messenger. And a divine messenger could also be interpreted as receiving inspiration from cosmic intelligence, which we could also term as intuition. Now, I'm not going to smash people's storylines here or say that it's ridiculous for us to assume that God is a man well that is ridiculous but that God is a person and you know it's easier to relate to angels I think if we give them some sort of at least humanoid form but we really do need to be careful not to give them human characteristics because these beings are pre-embodiment they don't carry all the error codes that we have that we've you know repeatedly thrust ourselves into these you know, physical incarnations and had all these experiences messed up and try to rectify them and balance our karma, dharma and all of that stuff. So if it helps you to think in terms of you pray to a deity that somehow looks a bit like us and then has other hierarchy of light that somehow look a bit like us but are more glorious and they bring you this information and it's all good... Well, I suppose there's not much harm in that. It's just that at some point we will move on from this personification and we won't think of ourselves as that anymore. We'll think of ourselves as sort of a point of light on the matrix. And every part of cosmic hierarchy, I think we'll think of as points of light on the matrix. That's all, just a big picture to put out there. But very good question, Noni, and thank you. So I hope that cleared that up. There's a, oh yeah, here it is. There's another note here from Kitty. Hello, Kitty. 
<laughs> well, um, Kitty. Kitty is a vet tech, and she's from Idaho. And Kitty says, at about 18 minutes in your show, you refer to root cells. But you didn't really explain who or what that is. I'm guessing based on context, but, Arnie, can you please explain? Well, thanks for picking up on that, Kitty, because that is an important one. A root soul. A root soul is a soul created in the very beginning of time, when it was realised that we could experience in either spirit form or physical form. So we could say that the root souls are the originators of the gazillion souls that are currently experiencing throughout the cosmos. The first set of souls to experience as humans, those were the root souls, and they were created by the gods of the universes, and from them, from the root souls, came pretty much all the souls experiencing today, with an exception or two. I have been advised that the beings we commonly call archangels, the pre-embodiment primary expressions of source, do produce souls from time to time, as needed, for very specific purposes. I assume those are going to be the people we would call avatars. You know, the really enlightened ones, the super-duper, pooper-scooper, cosmic soul people that are going to come and help us out when we're in times of extreme crisis and extremes in contrast, pretty much like now. So any avatars out there? Um, uh, Earth calling, hello. So in ancient shaman lore, in our traditions, the root souls are referred to as the first ones. And I assume that, you know, every god of every universe has its own version of the first ones. So hopefully that helps a bit. Uh, so we got root souls down. If you didn't understand that, drop me a line, you know where I am. All right. And there's, oh, there's another note here. Oh, yeah. I know who you are. This note comes from a neighbour down the road from me who says, Arnie, in a segment near the end of your show, you use the term in real life. Yet, in every lecture I have attended, you state that all is illusion and nothing is actually real. Explain, please. All right, then, my dear neighbour, I will have a stab at this. Since all points in time and space are the same, then the term in real life, or in the real world, is the term I think I used, is commonly used to describe our current realm of experience. In other words, you and me, all of us, right now, as humanoids, on Earth. Now, the confusion comes here. In ancient shaman law, again, in shaman traditions and language, reality is that which cannot be changed. And that would be our raw divine cosmic soul core, the part of us that is only source energy. Everything else, which would be, you know, physical incarnations and other experiences, they are just temporary fleeting experiences, a story we're writing and enacting. And it's not to say there's, you know, no use for them. Certainly they're valid. Otherwise, we wouldn't have created all of these physical cosmos universes and planets and, you know, everything else, parallel universes, whatever. Um, it's just that they're temporary, so in shaman law they're not considered real. Now, I use the term IRL in real life, or you know, in the real world, when referring to our dominant focus. In other words, this incarnation that we're having, that we're all sharing and aware of. It just makes life easier. So apologies for the confusion, 
all really is illusion, but another word for illusion is a temporary experience. So hope that helps and um, fantastic. And I think that's the end of our notes. Oh, no, wait. Oh, yeah. There's one little note here. That was an email. And that came in from Mary in Ohio, who writes, You promised us really bad, silly poetry. The one you just read, The Spoon, is quite serious. I'm disappointed. I wish to be entertained. Well, Mary, sorry, love. I'll try to do better this week. Most of my poems really are very, very silly because I'm usually quite silly. But once in a while, we have to be serious. It's good to have that contrast, right? Okay, thanks for the comments, everyone. Oh, my God, people actually listened in. Woohoo, this is all very exciting. Okay, moving on. What shall we talk about this week? What has been coming through the door of my office? What is the dominant dysfunctional focus on everyone's mind lately? And you know what? It's that pesky little demon, self-sabotage. So what is self-sabotage? We should talk about that. What isn't self-sabotage. How do we identify it? And hopefully, how do we overcome it? Because here's the thing. We persist (laughs) as a race. We persist in acting in ways that are contrary to our goals. Anything that's long-term, anything that's beneficial to us, the universe, the cosmos, we get thrown off track so easily. Why do we persist in that? Why do we engage in this destructive, dysfunctional behaviour when we know full well it's not in our best interests? And why do we do it over and over and over again? Is one part of our personality at war with another part of our personality? That sounds a little frightening, doesn't it? So what is it? Is it fear? What do we fear? Do we fear change? Do we fear success? Do we fear failure? Do we fear invasions? What do we fear? Perhaps we don't know what we fear anymore. It's just turned into this general anxiety of everything and everyone. Perhaps we're so overloaded and distracted in today's busy world that we've got something along the lines of a decision paralysis. You know, that comes up a lot, especially when you're grocery shopping. Maybe there's too many choices. Maybe we don't have the emotional, intellectual equipment to sort all that out anymore. There's something to think about. Some would say we sabotage ourselves because we're weak. Mm, I don't know about that so much. I think that uh, we're taught, perhaps, that we should have a strong will. But I think that we should be taught that we need skill. Because this is the game of life, you know? Is it will? Is it skill? I don't know. A bit of both? Is sabotage some deep flaw within our programming? Or, just a thought, is it an external field of resistance programmed to keep us from our cosmic alignment? You know, trying to keep us from leading functional, fulfilled lives, what we came down for. And I think what we have to realise, the key word here is resistance. It keeps coming up. We are resistant to behaviours that benefit us. So let's try to sort this out, shall we? Because if self-sabotage is something that you struggle with, and if you genuinely want to overcome it, I know I do, instead of bashing ourselves over the head for being lazy or not disciplined enough and, you know, really being hard on ourselves, let's try asking ourselves the following question. What am I doing or not doing that is sabotaging my efforts? What am I doing or not doing 
that is sabotaging my efforts. Now, let's be honest with ourselves, because if we can't be honest with ourselves, we have no right to expect others to be honest with us, do we? And if we aren't honest with ourselves, we'll always have a half-life, afraid of our shadows and the imaginary monsters that lurk in the inner corridors of our minds. We created this realm. We co-created this realm. We created the light and the dark and everything else in between. And we're afraid of our creations. We should think about that from time to time. We're victims in our own illusion. Sort of like you're in a petri dish surrounded by all your bacteria and you can't get out. Very odd. We're very odd people. We're very, very odd, us humans. We're very confused. Anyway, back to sorting this out. I think if we're going to sort out what we're doing that's sabotaging our efforts, we need to make a list. Lists are always good. So we need to make a list of actual behaviours. Not thoughts, not the emotions, not the intentions. But we need to make an actual list of behaviours that we're using to self-sabotage ourselves, to distract us from getting on with the work that is important. So I'm going to use me as an example because... I know me better than <laughs> better than I know anyone else. So, this is a this is this is me. So, if your goal is to write two chapters of your book before you leave for work each morning, because you know you're not going to feel like doing it after a hard day's work, make a list of all the behaviours that prevented this from happening. Now, over the years, I have to tell you, I have come up with some doozies, but here's just three of them. My favorites. Number one, instead of getting up early to write the two chapters of my book, I decided to leave early so that I could check out an alternative route to work in case of traffic disruptions caused by, but not limited to, alien invasions and general Armageddon. I think we'll all agree that's one of the stupidest reasons anyone can come up with for, you know, being distracted. <laughs> Number two, I thought I might pop into Safeway on my way to work to see if bananas were any cheaper today, because I may fancy eating a banana later today, but they were very expensive yesterday. I'm not even going to talk about how stupid that is. And the third one, I decided that cleaning the toilet was more important than writing, because you never know who might pop in to use the loo while you're away at work. Okay, clearly, these are at the extreme end of the silly person's avoidance meter. But you wouldn't believe how creative we can be when it comes to resistance. And again, resistance is the key word here when dealing with, uh, with that pesky little demon self-sabotage. So let's do... I say take a week. Take a week and analyse your behaviour. Catch yourself when you are you know, in the throes of self-sabotage and list the behavior. I'm not asking you to do anything about it. Just catch yourself and list the behavior rather like I just did up there. So now that we've listed our sorry little excuses, let's ask ourselves the following question. What is the worst thing that could happen if I accepted that I feel resistance but did not give in to resistance and just buckled down and completed the project I set for myself. I'll repeat that. What is the worst thing that could happen if I accepted that I feel resistance 
but did not give in to resistance and just buckled down and completed the project I set for myself. Now, let's take a look at my scenarios. With scenario number one, in the event of life-threatening alien invasions or some other cataclysm, would I honestly be going to work? Of course not. That's silly. So I might as well write those two chapters. And if the world does blow up, perhaps my writings will be of value to the next generation of historians. See, that was easy. Scenario number two. Will the price of bananas really affect my consumption? Am I that broke that a dime or two will make a difference? And how do I know for sure that I'll fancy eating one later in the day? I'm not a banana psychic. Might as well just write those two chapters. And if the book sells well, I can afford to buy as many bananas as I want and eat them until I turn into a banana. Much better scenario. And with scenario number three, Quite frankly, if someone uses my loo while I'm away at work, they do so without my permission and they don't deserve a clean loo. So, might as well write those two chapters and if the book sells well, I can afford to pay someone to clean my loo. Now, some of you out there might be saying, Arnie, that's all just so silly. Why do you... Why are you so silly? Why bother with those ridiculous exercises? They're not ridiculous. We come up with the ridiculous to avoid doing what is the obvious. We all have reasons, some sensible, some not so sensible, to explain our behaviours. But we don't fully understand those reasons because they happen beyond our conscious awareness. If we don't understand how our minds work, how all this works, we'll keep acting out the same behaviours and we'll get, you know caught in this loop will stay there in the loop of self-sabotage. Do we really understand how the conscious, unconscious and super, super conscious minds work together? Because if we can't use our equipment, you know, if we don't know how to use the instructions, do we? You know, we need to read the instructions. We have primarily the three parts of our mind, our conscious mind, our super conscious mind, and then there's that deep pool of the unconscious mind. And I think... And psychologists may disagree with me. Some do, some don't. But over the years, we've become so indoctrinated and somewhat fragile and fragmented, really, that our unconscious mind doesn't always allow us access to, to that deep pool of wisdom in there. Because it's not just about our behaviors, our likes, our dislikes, and our memories of this life. It's all of our lives. And we can learn a tremendous amount from those unconscious patterns. A very Basic example, I suppose, would be, say you have an accident and you, you're riding your bike, your bicycle, and you fall off your bicycle and you hurt yourself. And you know darn well that the only thing to do is to shake yourself off um, and get back on that bike and ride it again so that you override the emotional trigger of fear that is now associated with riding a bike. But your subconscious mind doesn't trust you somehow so, because you don't, you know, open the door to it and investigate it enough. So the subconscious mind says to you, oh, no, Arnie, don't get back on your bike because last time you got on it, you fell off. You see what I'm saying? Does this all make sense? I hope it does. Because we're not really connected through our conscious, subconscious and superconscious minds. They don't all drink from the same cup as they should. And we'll talk about how to make that happen later. But in general, as George Carlin said so rightly, 
first world people, we are entertained and distracted from the obvious and from what's important. And this is a major factor to consider when you're dealing with uh, with, with uh, self-sabotage. So let's ask ourselves, who runs our minds? Are we really in control here? Or, you know, have we given up? Have we tuned into the channel of the conformist minions of mediocrity? Yeah, those people who are afraid of exploring the deep pool of wonder within their subconscious mind and connecting all of the parts of their minds with the cosmic matrix. Transformation. It's not easy, is it, for us? Change is not easy. But real transformation, it requires that we look at our behaviours with some neutrality and with some distance. For example, instead of saying, this is me, right, with my self-sabotage and always going on diets and sticking to them for a while and then not sticking to them, la, 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 la. Okay, so if I say to myself, oh, Arnie, you silly cow, why on earth did you do that? You should know better by now. You stuck to your diet for six days and on the seventh day, you went forth into the firmament and devoured a box of donuts. You gave in to your inner saboteur. You are weak. You are easily tempted. Shame on you, woman. Well, that's not going to motivate me to do better, is it? I'm just going to feel bad about myself and probably eat another box of donuts. And then when I've eaten those donuts, I'm going to feel very sugar overloaded and I'm going to go and make myself a cheese sandwich to balance it out. And then I'm going to want a cup of tea. And I do like to have some digestives with my tea. You see how it goes. So instead of all that, you know, making ourselves feel bad so that we can go ahead and repeat the bad behavior that made us feel bad in the first place, why not show some self-respect and try a different approach? For example, I could say to myself, Arnie, hmm, I wonder why I did that today. I was good for so long and then... I wasn't. What tipped the scale? No pun intended. You see, it takes the pressure off and it eliminates self-loathing. And nothing throws you back into the field of resistance and self-sabotage faster than a good dose of self-loathing. The point I'm trying to make here, I think, is that Resistance is this insidious field of energy. It's made up of all of our collective insecurities. Let's put it that way. It's a powerful force to be reckoned with. And if we don't pay attention, it will kick our asses and it will take us down. So let's not engage with it. Instead, let's acknowledge it and then turn away from it. If we find ourselves caught up in this field of resistance, and we will... Let's accept it for what it is and acknowledge what it's trying to do and then turn our backs to it and get on with whatever the project in hand is. You say to yourself, yes, I acknowledge that I am resistant to engaging in this thing, this project that will benefit me and others greatly. And now, having acknowledged that, I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. It's the only way forward, in my opinion. It's an enemy we can't engage with because the minute we do, the minute we do, it brings up the sum total of our insecurities, 
which then vibrates to the sum total of everybody else's insecurities, and then we've lost before we started. So we need to eliminate the triggers that keep sending us back into the battlefield. There's quite a few ways that we can do that. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's give you some tips. I think that might be really good. So at least three times a day, ask yourself, where am I now? Just take a moment, pause and say, where am I now? This stops the chatter and it redirects your focus. Or you could say, where are my thoughts now? If that makes you more focused. But it's important to gather our thoughts and to refine our focus on a regular basis because conformists listen to the chatter while free thinkers focus on the things that matter. Distraction tactics, people. It keeps us off the path of spiritual alignment, and it's a favorite tool of the establishment in all its many forms, whether it's advertising or food or whatever. We have been carefully trained to miss the obvious. We've been carefully trained not to focus on long-term goals and to give attention to the things that matter. So we won't be affected by this self-sabotage and this insidious field of resistance if we own our minds. Time to reclaim our minds. Um, You know what helps greatly with that? And you're all going to moan and groan because this happens every time I say this. It's the practice of silence and breath meditation. Yes, folks, it's true. And that's why I go on about it and on about it ad nauseum, because it's the only permanent solution to the many glitches our brains experience daily. See, when you have a practice of silence and you couple that with analysing behaviour from a place of non-emotion, gently, kindly, but not emotionally, it will uncover this deep belief system that lies at the root of our issues. And our behaviours, they're rooted in belief systems. Belief systems are assumptions that we're totally unaware of. Coding, indoctrination. And by indoctrination, I don't mean 1984 necessarily. I mean whatever your parents told you, whatever the teachers told you, whatever they told you at college, whatever they told you in the armed forces, whatever your corporate line is, whatever the people who want to sell you shampoo and underarm deodorant, that's all part of that field, isn't it? So think about this. That concept about being born into original sin and then having to prove your worth to God daily um, or burn in hell. Now, yes, okay, I know, I know. You're out there, you're going, I'm an adult now. I don't really believe in a mad, capricious bastard of a God. But that assumption, that assumption, it exists in the field of resistance, and it's written somewhere in our coding, just waiting to kick into action when we come across a matching vibration, because that is how the universe works. And as we discover, come across these odd, awkward, and sometimes horrid little error codes, let's acknowledge them for what they are. Coding. And coding is fluid, and it can be overwritten. So using similar methods to the one we discussed earlier in the podcast, we'll be able to examine and eliminate the dysfunctional aspects of our behavior and write new codes which will be passed down to our progeny. And each time this happens, the collective field of resistance diminishes and we're one step closer to ushering in a new golden age of reason and cosmic inspiration. 
Now that's bigger than it sounds. Just think about it. You overcome issues that debilitate you. You've rewritten the code. You have rewritten that code in your DNA RNA. And you will not be passing on that dysfunction to your progeny. And nor will they, and on and on and on. That's big. Not only that, you're contributing light into the field of confusion. And that's a really big one. Because people come into me every day to, to the office and they say, I feel guilty that I can afford to go on vacation when the world is full of trauma and homeless people all up and down the freeways. I feel guilty because I have a, you know, the opportunity for a new job or this or that or the other. Stop that. If something good is happening in your life, praise it. Bring light into the world. Get yourself into that higher vantage point. And the higher you vibrate, the more inspiration comes in from the cosmos. And the more you understand that information, the better decisions to make. And then you overcome more of your issues and pass that on to your progeny. It's not rocket science, <laughs> but this is the way forward into a new golden age. So remember, people, you will never be a connoisseur if you feed the saboteur. Acknowledge the resistance and then turn your back on it and get on with your work. You know, acknowledging it, acceptance is major in overcoming our issues. When we accept something, we're not saying we like it. Bad things happen. We don't like the bad things that happen. But if we accept that they're happening, then we're aligning with the experience. And when we align with the experience, there isn't that uh, resistance. And then we're calmer. And in that calm moment comes the solution to our problems. That's how it works. Okay. Go away and figure all that out, because it's important. All right. So enough about that, and let's uh, make it a little bit more light-hearted now, shall we? So I think it's time for... I've got 10,000 pieces of paper here. Let's see. Oh, yeah. I think it's time for a little pat of poetry. And this is from my upcoming collection, really bad but occasionally brilliant, poetry from a mad suburban shaman. And this one is called My Dud Spud. It recounts a very sad day in my life. The day I came home hungry, looking forward to a nice baked potato, but my potato was nowhere to be found. And folks, this is actually a true story. My Dud Spud by Annie Avedisian. I lost my potato the other day. I don't know where it went. It just went away. I have no idea where it chose to travel, but it's a mystery I must unravel. I've searched the chipper and the chocolate dipper. I've checked out the oven and the local Wiccan coven. I'm somewhat distressed because potatoes are the best. But it's lost, so no dice. I guess I'll eat rice. Well, that was it. You know, don't expect Shakespeare from me. Just a bit of fun, a bit of street poetry. All right. And now it's time for a different segment. You know, and as I get better at these podcasts, I'll actually get some sound effects and learn how to use them. But, uh, you know, here we go. And now it's time for question and answer. Do you have questions on spirituality and metaphysics? Are you just as confused as life <laughs> as I am? 
this universe and everything is very confusing. What shall we do about it? We don't know. Hey, let's talk about it together. Send me an email at arnie at arnieavidition.com or if you prefer snail mail, as some of you apparently still do, drop me a line at cosmicarnie, P.O. Box 714, Wilsonville, Oregon, 97070. Okay, here we go. And our first question. Law of Attraction says you get what you think about. It says there is no no, only yes. Given that, how does a person exist in a world with so many bad things happening and not think about the negative? A good question, actually. I get asked that a lot. Law of Attraction is about dominant focus. We're always going to have negative stuff cross our minds and we will inevitably crash from time to time. It's okay. It's normal. The point is not to stay there. If you're having a bad day, well, instead of spending all day fussing and fuming like some sort of toddler triceratops, make peace with your bad moments. Have a cup of tea or, you know, a small drinky poo and move on. There's something very grounding about acknowledging our negativity, isn't there? Because again, once we accept it, the resistance around it dissolves and we're in a better place, a higher vantage point, and we can move on. Higher vantage point, higher inspiration, a higher level of understanding, and, you know, that's really what it's all about, getting a little bit better every day. So thank you for that question, which came from Sue in South Dakota. Thanks, Sue. I appreciate the uh, the question there. Here's another one, and this is from Chrissy, Chrissy with a K. Uh, oh, she also lives in South Dakota. Oh, my God. Two whole people live in South Dakota, and they both wrote to me. How fabulous. I should plan a trip there. All right. Chrissy with a K asks, If we can be or do or have anything we want... How does that fit in with what Wayne Dwyer referred to as our dharma? Or the belief that we came into this life to accomplish something? Aren't those two things in opposition? Well, Chrissy, I don't see that they are in opposition. Ours is a free will universe, and we're at liberty to modify our contracts. Lord knows we break them all the time. If you came in with a burning desire to accomplish something, chances are it will keep pushing up against your face until you pay attention. And if you don't pay attention, then you live with the consequences. And the consequences of that is not hellfire or whatever. It's if you break your contract, then on a soul level, everybody involved with that contract has to renegotiate it. Now, if I remember rightly from my comparative religion days... Eastern religions differ somewhat on the meaning of Dharma. Uh, I think they all agree it's some sort of morality, a virtue, a right way to live. For some of them, it's even a sense of religious duties that have to be accomplished in a certain order. My understanding is that it is a sense of right-mindedness, a sense of purpose, but that purpose is to seek cosmic inspiration throughout your incarnation and to become, well, an effective co-creator. So you could say that before we project ourselves into these physical realms, our dharma is guided by our karma. And if we veer too far from that once we're here, how we manage our dharma will affect our karma, and so forth until we figure it all out. 
You know, it has to be said, life is supposed to be a great space adventure. Let's live honorably, yes, let's live ethically, but let's not downgrade our incarnations to a checklist. As the world changes, so too will our purpose change. So let's keep it chill, we'll figure it out. And the world is changing rather rapidly right now. Probably that's why we're all so confused. A little bit of meditation will fix that, by the way. Okay, enough about meditation. I think we have another question here. Yes, we do. Okay. I'm going to try and do three three question and answers uh, per um, podcast. See how that goes. Okay, this question comes from Brian W., who lives in Margate back in the UK. Hello, Brian, an SX boy. How wonderful. Brian wants to know, he says, Hello, Ani. I have two questions for you. Brian, you sneaky little so-and-so. Okay. First question. All the people who live on other planets in higher dimensions, are they all vegetarians? Okay, Brian. This is actually something I've previously discussed with my off-world peeps, because even without going into the moral implications, I believe vegetarianism would benefit our environment. Their answer was, surprisingly, no. Not all people who live on planets in higher dimensions are vegetarians. But most are. For the ones who are carnivores, meat represents about 10% of their diet and their relationship with the animals is very different from ours. They wouldn't recognise a stockyard or a slaughterhouse and they would be appalled to know that such methods exist. So that's encouraging. When I asked them, um, you know, how did this happen? How did the transition from omnivore to vegetarian come to be? And the response was something along, along the lines of... It happened over a period of time, as part of our collective awakening. We found ourselves unwilling to slaughter and consume sentient beings, and after some time, our bodies changed in such a way as to make the ingestion and digestion of another sentient being impossible. Well, that certainly makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, our bodies need to house our levels of awareness. You know, there's a revolution going on on this planet right now. Um, you know, we've got carbon-based bodies, we're going into crystal-based bodies, and yet people are having difficulty balancing what to eat for their optimal physical health template. Now, I'm going to say, I'm going to add, because that was a good question, Brian, thank you. I'm going to add that just because most higher beings are vegetarians, it doesn't mean that all vegetarians are higher beings. You know the ones I'm talking about. The aggressive, militant little buggers with sticks up their asses. Obviously, they haven't heard the expression, before you jump out of your skin, feed them honey and you will win. Although, I suppose that doesn't apply to vegans, does it? Because they don't eat honey. You know, I'm a pretty much a vegetarian myself, so I'm not mocking everyone. I'm just saying, don't ram your ideas down people's throats. It's not the way, okay? And you guys annoy me terribly. Okay, rant over. Just a fun little dip bit, uh, tip bit here, you know, talking about um, Brian's question. When I was chatting to my ET peeps uh, recently about off-world food and drink habits, I said to them, you guys, you're probably far too advanced to consume alcohol, right? And their response to that was, well, it depends on what sort of day we've had, but we certainly don't consume it in the quantities you lot do. Hmm. I wonder if they drink metaphysical martinis. I'll have to ask. 
Right. Back to Brian. Yes, you had a second question, I know. And Brian's second question is also about aliens. Okay, mate. Right. Given the state of our world today, asks Brian, why don't the more enlightened ETs beam down and take over? They could knock the Illuminati out, claim all resources in the name of the people, and write the blueprint for a fair and equitable society. Well, Brian, for starters, I think the Intergalactic Council for Foreign Affairs, I just made that up, by the way, but there's probably something like that, would consider that an invasion. It's not their responsibility to fix our mess, it's ours. Let's say they do beam down and right all the wrongs. Well, how exactly does that benefit our spiritual evolution? We'd look back and go, oh yes. That was the time when we let the establishment turn us all into automatons and conformist minions, and then we just waved our hands in the air and said, oh my God, the Daleks have taken over, and we don't know what to do. Save us, Doctor Who, save us, Doctor Who. Do you see the problem with that? <laughs> I mean, we obeyed the establishment. We're obeying the establishment now. And, you know, and now we're willing to obey our new masters, whom we perceive as saviours. But since we haven't used our minds effectively for decades, in my humble opinion, well, they might well be just another version of the aforementioned establishment, and perhaps even worse. Who knows? Look, it's our planet. It's our responsibility. So let's get off our asses and do something with our useful, you know, with our incarnations. Do something useful with our incarnations. That's what it's all about. Grassroots revolutions. Reclaiming your mind. Creating safe spaces where we can discuss things previously thought to be taboo. And if we have enough critical mass in the shift in consciousness, all these things become mainstream again. And we move on. And it's all about moving on. Yes. And we are going to move on too now. Because that is the end of Q&A. And many thanks to all who sent in the letters. Keep them coming. Let's keep the discussion going. And let's make all things interdimensional mainstream. You know, people come up to me once in a while um, and they tell me they don't believe in anything woo. For example, they'd say, well... My 17-year-old daughter wanted to come to one of your workshops about witchcraft or tarot or whatever, but I don't want her learning anything woo or believing any of that woo stuff. People, honestly, grow up. I mean, what is woo to you exactly? What is woo unto you? What does it mean? Does it mean you don't accept that all things came from no things? You don't accept that planets and people, what do you think, they just appeared out of nowhere and then when they die and the planets die, they go nowhere? What do you think? What are you thinking? Because it's difficult, clearly, to debate with people who have, um, well, a vastly different level of awareness to yours. But I think we really have to, we really have to help each other here entertain other viewpoints, other points of view. People are stuck in this trap and they, because they're scared. There's so much information out there, they're scared because they haven't been trained to think through that information. So I had a wonderful idea myself the other day because this does come up quite a lot. And I'm not saying I'm a celebrity or anything because Lord knows I'm really not. But um, because I do some stuff on community cable in my local area, I get recognized in the supermarkets and in, in my little town, you know, in my little tiny town. 
So what I've done is I went out and I had some business cards printed out and it just says quantum physics for dummies. I hand them the card, I smile and I move on. That's all. All right, everyone, now it's time. Insert sound effect here. It's time for the wizard's gizzard. A little magic to spice up the mundane. A little spiritual ritual that you can make habitual. Well, today's ritual is an ancient focusing protocol known by many names. In my teachings back in the old Armenian shaman schools, it's called the Vek Gragin. Give it to the fire. Or in this case... Chances are you're going to be doing this indoors. Give it to the flame. We don't want you to set yourself on fire. There is no value in that. Okay, let's begin. This exercise is best when seated. Dim the lights. Light a candle. It can be white or gold or silver. And place the candle about three to five feet away from you so that the height is level with your eyes. Take nine deep, slow, purposeful breaths. Relax your shoulders. Focus on using your diaphragm for the breath. Nice and slow and as deep as is comfortable. Now for three minutes or more, but no more than nine minutes, stare into the flame. All that chatter in your head, give it to the flame. All the things that upset you today, give it to the flame. All those feelings of lack, give it to the flame. All those feelings of threat perception, give it to the flame. All the things you said that should not have been said, give it to the flame. All the things you should have said but did not say, give it to the flame. All the anger that swells up in your gut and ends up in your head, give it to the flame. Give it to the flame and let your worries burn up in the golden light of cosmic grace. Give it to the flame, all that does not serve your highest purpose or the betterment of mankind. Give it to the flame. That which does not bring you peace, give it to the flame. The flame clears your mind and sharpens your focus. Give it to the flame. Give it all to the flame. Give it all to the flame. Watch the flame dance, change colours. Perhaps you'll see visions in the flame. But it's taking all the redundant thoughts from your mind and burning it all up. Focus, focus, focus on the flame. Give all your troubles to the flame and sharpen your mind. And when your time is up, you can set a, a gentle timer. Don't do one of those brrrr timers just like a little gong ding okay so when you've done your thing and you've regained your focus and the timer goes off don't blow out the candle 
just a, a little magic thing there. We snuff it out. We say we don't blow away the magic. And magic is basically just alignment. We're not talking about occult strange things here. Give thanks and move on with your day. Now, that's a very ancient practice. It's used by many, many different cultures. And the beauty of it is, is once you've done it a few times and you've, you know, you've got that flame in your head, whenever you find yourself in need of focus and you're not in a position to burn your candle, like if you're at work in your cubicle or driving your cab or whatever, you can recreate that candle and that flame in your mind. And you can do the same exercise with no risk of setting anything on fire. How wonderful is that? That was today's Wizard's Gizzard. All right. So what's next on my list? Hmm. Oh, I thought, um, you know, I have classes and things that, that, that go on sort of during the summer years, so summer months. So here's a, a, a few things about my upcoming events and classes. If you're in my area, I'm in Wilsonville, sort of northern Oregon, southern Washington area. This is what I have coming up in the near future. And all the fine print details are on my website, which is arniavidician.com. So if you're interested in learning about sacred geometry, and this is a 101 for beginners class only, that's coming up on Saturday, July 27th, 7 to 9 p.m. As, as part of my Cosmic Conversations, two-hour presentations, monthly, fun, informal, fascinating, if I say so myself, introductions to popular New Age subjects. Sacred Geometry 101. If you've got a PhD in sacred architecture, you're going to be bored out of your head. This is for people who don't know much about this sort of thing. Okay. Then on Sunday, August the 4th, from 11 to 1, I have my Conscious Kitchen Witch Support Club. Yay! We call that Smells, Bells and Yells. Conscious Kitchen Witch is not about black magic. I don't know how many times I have to say that, but apparently I do. There's no such thing as a witch, actually, people. <laughs> it's just a term the establishment made up to declare a war on women, just like you know, what's happening now in Georgia, Alabama, and I think also Missouri. Interesting. Conscious Kitchen Witch Support Club is a bunch of women and men because male witches are also called witches. They're not warlocks. Warlocks are people who get kicked out of the coven because they've done bad juju. So we get together, um, we burn some candles, we pray, we, you know, spellcrafting is praying, um, we chant, and we talk about ways that we can make our lives and the lives of all around us better every day in small ways. It's a lot of fun. Plus, there's lots of cookies to eat. Okay, that is on, yeah, August the 4th, uh, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. On Sunday, August the 18th, from 11 a.m. to 3 p.m., I have my annual tea and tarot class, where I will be discussing the basics of uh, tarotology. It's a fun little class. We all get together, have tiny cucumber sandwiches, and I'll teach you all the basics. Um, so that's, that's always fun, and that's usually quite well sold out. So uh, get online and book that one if you're interested. And then I think the last one for now, anyway, Sunday, September the 15th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., energy healing for non-professionals. So if you don't want to spend thousands of dollars becoming a, a Reiki master or a pranic healing guru, and all you want to do is to have the confidence to lay your hands on your, on your family, your friends, your pets, to make the world a better place and ease some of their suffering, you just need to know the basics of energy work, the basics of the light body anatomy. This is the class for you. 
Okay, so that's on September 15th. And all of these classes, as I said, take place at my office in Wilsonville, Oregon. But if you and your group want to host any of these privately, because that's actually a very popular option, and that can be done on location or via Skype, call with questions, blah, 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 blah. Okay. Deep breath. And now a segment that I like to call Tarot a Go-Go. Now, for most people, tarot is the gateway into the world of spiritual exploration. And like runes or rosaries or other such items, it's an excellent focusing tool for the mind. So if you have a set of cards, why not get them out and, you know, we'll travel together. The way I teach tarot, it's not so much for divination because every thought is a ripple in the pool of consciousness. No one can really tell you what's going to happen because it's based on, you know, so many thought forms created by so many people. So when people say, well, I got a card, I got a, you know, I got a box of cards, the tarot cards, and I have my book and based on what the book says, I can read my fortune. That's rubbish. Absolute rubbish. You can't. Learning to use the tarot, it's a meditative process, rather like learning the rosary or the runes or other devotional practices. The cards carry images on them, archetypal images, coded information, symbolism, and symbolism varies from culture to culture. The way I teach tarot is I say, take a look at the cards, divide them into the four suits and the major arcana which represent all the archetypes and then pick one card a week and stare at that card i'm just gonna pick a card at random here and i've got the fool zero the first line um the, the very first card in the entire deck and when you take a look at a card oh yeah you'll see okay it's a bloke and he's wearing a pretty tunic and he's got a dog and he's got a backpack and he's on the edge of a cliff and he's holding a white rose. And you go, right, okay, there's a picture, it's a fool. Is he an idiot? Uh, what is he? Well, that's the whole thing, isn't it? He can be anyone. All of those symbols can mean something different. And they do, because every single person has a whole universe going on inside their head. So you look at the card for the first day and you go, yeah, it's a bloke, he's got a backpack, blah, blah, blah. And you do this for 15 minutes a day for, say, seven days in a row, right? And then the second day you pick it up and you go, oh, yeah, it's the bloke with the backpack, but that backpack, that's tiny. If he's a traveller, why does he have such a tiny backpack? And the dog's got a strange little expression on his face. Is he happy? Is he sad? Is he anxious? Can't quite make it out. So you look at that and you go, oh, I didn't notice yesterday that the lining of his tunic was actually orange. Why didn't I notice that yesterday? That was really obvious. And then you put your card away and you pull it out the next day and you'll go, you know what? I never noticed the sky. It's not blue. It's yellow. Now, what's that supposed to represent? And then... Every day, new information comes in. And the more time you spend with each of these cards, and there's a lot of them, so it's, you know, it's, it's a long-term project, the more your visualization and your creativity expands. And the beautiful thing is, I'm, you know, I, you could look this up, I'm 60 years old this year. I've been studying tarot since I was 11. And I am at the point now where the cards talk to me. 
when I put them down to do a reading for people, and I have to say, reading tarot cards is probably like 2% of what I do, but I'll do it when asked because it's so much fun. When I put them down, I don't have to go, well, what does this mean? What does that mean? What does it... No, the cards literally talk to me because over the years, I've developed relationships with people, like the, the fool. In my deck, his name is Roland. And he, he talks to me, he goes, well, tell your client this. And that's the beauty of traveling with tarot cards. And people say, well, you know, you're making it up. Look, the whole bloody cosmos is made up, darlings. We co-created this from nothing. Everything is from no thing. As we think it, a stream of uh, consciousness appears and an energy stream follows that and it starts to turn into some sort of physical reality the longer we pour our thought streams into it. So when we're studying these tarot cards, we're not making it up. We're entering a different realm. We're entering the realm of the people who live in the tarot cards, which is just another personification of cosmic intelligence. And the reason I use the cards again, as I say, they are fun, but I use them primarily because it's the gateway drug for people who are contemplating spiritual uh, you know, metaphysics for the first time. Think, oh, maybe there is another side. Maybe there is another story to the mad capricious God and all of that. It's a lot of fun. So I'm going to be doing Tarot Agogo as a regular uh, segment on this show. Um, so, you know, get used to it. I hope you like it. Go get yourself a, a pack of tarot cards and we'll be able to, to talk about it as we go along. Okay. Well, my darlings, I'm going to do a time check here. I think we're done. I think we've come to the end of our show and I really do hope you enjoyed it because I really enjoyed doing it. So I'll just say I'm Arnie Avedisian, and I thank you for listening to Metaphysical Martini, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio. Until we meet again, let the spirit inhabit the human. You have been listening to The Metaphysical Martini Show with Ani Avedisian, the suburban shaman, a production of Cosmic Reality Radio.